welcome to Just Thinking Out Loud, my name is Desiree. For the prisoners of the Gulag camps in Russia in the 1900s, the journey continues yet is nearing a close. Maybe the dawn might be breaking and hope might be shining through. You are watching or listening to part 5 of a 6 part series on the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The Gulag Archipelago is a recounting of the Gulag labor camp prison system created in the Soviet Union under Stalin rule from 1918 to 1956 after the communist revolution in 1917 to 1918. Communism was supposed to be a way to end the exploitation of labor from the workforce but did exploit labor through its prison systems known as Gulags and was state enforced, allowing corruption to flourish under it more so than what it claimed at face value to want to replace. The term Gulag Archipelago refers to the chain of labor camps existing all over the Soviet Union like islands. The book is divided into seven parts spread across three volumes. In this video we're doing volume 3 part 5 all of it chapters 1 to 12. Oh my god what am I doing? Volume 3 Part 5. Katorga. The standard English translation for Katorga is hard labor or penal servitude, and the Russian term is derived from the Greek word for the forced labor of a slave chained to the oar of a galley. It's important to note that the word lauorga, the first syllable is stressed, and specifically had come to stand for a sorry type of punishment, which summoned to mind idealistic revolution. So this part of the book begins with a preface, so it's not written by Solzhenitsyn, and it's as follows. To those readers who have found the moral strength to overcome the darkness and suffering of the first two volumes, the third volume will disclose a space of freedom and struggle. The secret of this struggle is kept by the Soviet regime even more zealously than that of the torments and annihilation it inflicted upon millions of its victims. More than anything else, the communist regime fares the revelation of the fight which is conducted against it with a spiritual force unheard of and unknown to many countries in many periods of their history. The fighter's spiritual strength rises to the greatest height and to a supreme degree of tension when their situation is most helpless and the state system most ruthlessly destructive. This preface distinguishes the fact that the evil that was used to defeat evil through terrorism in this case is very distinguishable from the left-wing terrorism of the West, which is different because Western countries and terrorists, they have freedom and they play with innocent people's lives for the sake of unclear purposes or to gain material advantage, which is very different from only killing traitors who are known or informers who are known in order to be able to breathe. I want to pause here and ask you to do a little mental exploration which I will not answer for you, which is how is the way this word breathe is used here by the author to the preface compared to the way the word breathe has been used in very prominent protests that occurred in the United States, particularly in 2020 and spread across the world. How is the context and emotional manipulation from the people who are advocating using this word breathe different? Chapter one, the doomed. 
The irony of the opening statement is clear because the word katorga, which was used to describe slave labor and ideals of revolution, it was revived later on by Stalin himself. Katorgas were murder camps that were built from 1943 to 1944. There weren't any latrines, only latrine buckets. The officers did not have to account for killing people. There were, or casualties in general, there were 12-hour workdays um, and their 12 hours of rest included moving and inspection. By the way, 12 hours of work is really long. I used to work on fishing boats and you'd have um, ships and you could choose the kind of shift you wanted but you could work for 12 hours and then rest for 12 hours if you wanted and the kind of job i had there were breaks and stuff but if you are seriously working for 12 hours manual labor it's really long and it's really hard so they only had about four hours actually of rest tents were used as housing with 200 people fitting into a tent made for 80 people as an example of a job that they might be doing it might be quarrying stones for roadways Katarjanis, as they were called, were not paid any money. They were called by numbers and they were thought of as deserving of being sent to these camps. At Vorkuta, the first 28,000 prisoners all passed under the earth within a year. There was a women's camp in mine number two at Vortuga where women were sent there simply for sleeping with foreign troops. That's the only reason. And there were male traitors who were also sent to these camps for trivial reasons. For example, helping Germans to carry hay on a sledge. Teachers were sent to these camps because they didn't want to lie in their jobs. And women lied about dropping bombs because they didn't want to do that. And then they got sent to camps for that. But German arrival into Russia meant justice. People could sleep at night. Churches were able to open again and people were expected to ignore the mass graves in order to pr protect and defend the Soviet Union. So in 1943, under the Germans when they came, 39 mass graves were found that were 3.5 meters deep, 3 meters wide, 4 meters long, and that had been overgrown by really nice grass, or people had had their hands tied behind their backs, and they were executed in prison by being shot in the head. And in total, 9,439 corpses in 95 graves were found in Vinitsa alone. When I hear this number, something funny happens to me. I feel kind of angry at the people who are arguing over exactly how many million people died because 9,000 is also a really big number. And people are, I've seen <laughs> on the internet, People arguing over whether or not 1 million people or 2 million or 20 million or 30 million died and it's like a stain on the concept of communism or whatever ideology because people are inflating the numbers. Like it doesn't matter <laughs> if it was 100,000 people. That's a lot of people. And I get it. We're kind of we kind of need to shut off a lot of our sensitivity in some ways but you're also you also should know that you're doing that and be able to bring back i think that empathy and understand what exactly it is you're talking about because 
that's traumatizing. Soljanitsyn, who by the way, I started to call Solji because it's shorter to pronounce, he and his wife, he recounts a story of them meeting someone named Bronovitsky who they used to live with and he and his wife shaming this couple that they lived with because they were supporting the Germans and he and his wife, Solzhenitsyn and his wife, didn't really understand what was going on yet. They didn't understand why there was a lack of bread and why the countryside was being ruined. Schoolmates didn't say that their fathers were being taken away and the story of the Bronovetskis he thinks is important because these were the kinds of people who were then called traitors and possibly sent to the Katorga. He remembered the dekulakization and removal of churches and jobs. Solzhenitsyn thinks that Bronovetsky going to the other extreme and looking for better leadership in Hitler, um, that that was a mistake because patriotism for another set of butchers wasn't any better. Although not everyone was like Bronovitsky, a lot of people must have felt trapped about changing sides. And this question is asked in the text. Hitler must have been bad, but why would Russians decide to go to Hitler in the first place? Here's another quote I want to share. These people who had experienced on their own hides 24 years of communist happiness knew by 1941 what as yet no one else in the world knew. That nowhere on the planet, nowhere in history, was there a regime more vicious, more bloodthirsty, and at the same time more cunning and ingenious than the Bolshevik, the self-styled Soviet regime. That no other regime on earth could compare with it either in the number of those it had done to death, in hardiness, in the range of its ambitions, in its thoroughgoing and unmitigated totalitarianism. No, not even the regime of its pupil Hitler, which at that time blinded Western eyes to all else. And so Stalin at one point had said that a lot of people had gone to the enemy and threw down their arms at first contact. And this was true, but that's because a lot of the common people didn't like the collectivization that was going on and that they saw through the lies in the newspapers. And so a lot of them joined Vlasov, who's mentioned in volume one, they joined his movement. When the war was drawing to an end as early as 1945, lights were lit in the cells and during 1946 to 1947, the Katorga became less harsh because more workers were needed. Chapter two, the first whiff of revolution. At first, Solzhenitsyn hadn't thought that things would ever get better, but there was a first whiff of times changing in around 1950 when Solzhenitsyn was being transferred from his golden period. I think that's when he had become a scientist, kind of, a physicist, and lied about it, um, but it worked. <laughs> um, he was being transferred on a three-month trip to the Katorga. The guards and the prisoners would have actual debates and it wasn't clear who was the enemy of the people. Because there were new 25-year sentences, prisoners felt more free to speak. He mentions on the Ruzayev line near the Torbeyevo station that it was clear that Russia wasn't actually doing well. And there's a scene he recounts of an old woman coming to look at the prisoners' faces and the guards telling her not to look, but in a friendly way because she was an old, nice lady, that kind of trope but her looking anyway and a little girl standing beside and staring so hard with sadness, deep sadness in her eyes and then the woman like praying the cross over them 
and also that a tear trickled down her cheek and then at another time another woman being told to stay away but her giving giving the prisoners cigarettes and saying that no you're just like us even though the guards were calling them traitors or whatever and he mentions that the guards probably didn't actually think they were protecting the people from the enemies. However, this was just the first whiff and nothing really changed. Some 58 political prisoners would begin to talk back to the guards or think their thoughts out loud again. Solzhenitsyn also spends a little bit of time talking about Ukraine, the Ukraine and Russia and the Ukraine should be able to have secession but that, that wouldn't solve all these problems and that the issue is very personal for him because he has both Ukrainian and Russian in his blood. Prisoners were excited about there being a possible third world war, which Solzhenitsyn thinks is foolish, but a lot of prisoners, that was all the hope that they had. And he mentions in a footnote a statistic from France about how Russian immigrants were committing the most crime after World War II, whereas between the first and the second world wars that had been the opposite. Chapter 3. Chains, Chains. The blacksmiths at Minlag refused to forge bars for the hot windows of special camps. Handcuffs were used religiously, which were not used in the regular corrective labor camps. Handcuffs crushed wrists and fingers as well that brought men to tears and produced submission in the prisoners. Everyone, everything that was already hard became harder. Someone had to have first come up with these additional measures. The practice of using a number instead of the prisoner's name was borrowed from the Nazis. Warders were forced to use prisoner numbers and forget prisoners' names. Prisoners had to explain in writing why beds were untidy, why a cap hadn't been taken off for a warder, and so on. The number system didn't fully work, especially around prisoners. And there's something here that made me laugh, which was some dandified trustees saw to it that their numbers were stitched really neatly and the edges tucked in so it made the with like nice stitching so that it looked kind of pretty and this would distinguish them because i think humans have a social need uh, to display hierarchy in some way and he says that they're lackeys born and bred in quotes and while for him and other prisoners, they tried their best to make their number patches look horrible and shoddy. And here's a quote. The wall of silence was so reliable that the celebrated disciplinary officer at Spask, Captain Vorobyov, and his underlings first punished, in quotation marks, punished, an imprisoned Hungarian ballerina by putting her in the black hole, then handcuffed her then while she was handcuffed raped her spask was a special camp where terminal cases were sent and where even one-legged men would be forced to work prisoners worked to quarry stone and dig graves they worked in temperatures that were 30 degrees below freezing men became mythical figures to their families and four years after the nuremberg trials and never again Women burned letters written from prisoners, which was not much better than the women of the Secret Service who collected hair from corpses. Underwear was changed twice a month and other clothes twice a year. Private books were confiscated and only certain political books were allowed. Prisoners were searched daily and in more detail than in regular camps. 
Soles are removed from shoes and grass removed to prevent weapons being hidden. Boards are pried up. Devout religious women refused to wear numbers to avoid the mark of the beast. And they walked around in their shifts and refused to surrender their souls to Satan. Prisoners were scared and beaten down. They would forget their right to freedom as divine beings. So Janison's words, although I agree. Any dissent was crushed with force. In the disciplinary barracks, prisoners built their own prison to make more space, as runaways who had been caught were brought by them after being shot or about to be beaten up. However, eventually there were successful escapes, and all the other prisoners were glad about them. Chapter 4. Why did we stand for it? Why didn't prisoners rebel and not rebel more? An outsider might ask. The Tsars crushed dissent, but not in the way that the Soviet regime did. Under Stalin, for even attempts on their lives, the Tsars didn't do what Stalin did. The Tsars didn't execute thousands for this, for attempts on their lives, but only five. They didn't do mass terrors and they didn't take hostages. There could only be one political prisoner in an entire prison. And as the fear of public opinion grew in time, the Tsars would become less harsh. In fact, as you may know, the viewer or listener, the Tsars actually nurtured revolutionaries because for Lenin, his brother was able to attend school and organize a demonstration against the government after attempting to end the life of Alexander III. The accomplice on the attempt of the Tsar's life was only given two years, whereas in the Soviet Union, he would have been shot. Lenin was able to write his economic manuscripts while being well-fed getting an allowance from the state and being able to travel as a free person to his banishment. He didn't experience what the Soviet Union ended up doing to people who dissented. For not staying in exile, Lenin only had three weeks in a cell. Revolutionaries were banished to their places of choice and their hometowns. They were given books to read and they could pass comments among neighboring cells. A Bolshevik philosophical and political journal called Mysil was legally published at the time. Revolutionary artists had copies of their works burned, but these conditions were seen as extreme at the time. In particular, the Tsars did not attack a person's family and relatives, but this was expected under the Soviet regime. Other school children might be punished under the Soviet regime, and families would have to change their last name or beg on the street. Solzhenitsyn also mentions that Tolstoy thought that moral self-improvement was the only thing that was necessary rather than political freedom because he was living in these times before Stalin. Reading this reminded me of current times and people pushing for change without understanding what they have and the context and thinking that revolution, which means forcing other people to do what you want, when the, the way people use the word revolution nowadays, because they're different kinds of revolution, um, thinking that that will result in a better outcome because that is a fallacy, a fallacy in thinking. Solzhenitsyn mentions that the social climate being against the Tsars didn't actually fully come into force until people were being threatened simply for brushing by a policeman. So the policemen were the enemy. And of course that makes me think also about modern times. Not modern, modern times like this year, but last year. Because, you know, things just, they change so fast. You know, they just get us thinking about whatever they want us to be thinking about. He also mentions that the social reasoning behind the communist revolution, specifically 
explicitly accounts for human sacrifice being necessary for the good and happiness of Russia. Because new life was not possible without casualties in the present. So to answer the question of why did prisoners just put up with it? Because all their actions were meaningless if they were also fighting public opinion, which they were. Prisoners themselves would also fear brutalization because if they participated in a hunger strike or said or did the wrong thing, they could get another term or be sent to the shiso, which is a penalty isolator. I actually know that word now. So chapter five, poetry under a tombstone, truth under a stone. At first, Solzhenitsyn avoided manual labor, but it was only after he became a manual laborer that he, see, he says his views solidified in life. He was also able to write poetry and he says that this is when he realized that everything in life was relative and when he felt happy and free. This creative energy gave him this feeling of needing to release that helped him to not be there with what was happening around him. And he wrote with his memory. He says that he composed 12,000 lines counting over and over again to make sure that he didn't forget. He would use a 100 ball rosary that was made from bread that was soaked, kneaded beads, and that were colored with burnt rubber, tooth powder, and red germicides put on threads twisted together. And that's how he counted. He's also talking about his paper blowing away at one point, and he says something that I like. He says, when things are bad, we are not ashamed of our God. We are only ashamed of him when things go well. He also points out that a lot of people were writing in secret at the time and that the camp system obscured a great many poets who lived there. This is a poem by someone named Varlam Shalamov. I know none better, this is not a game or else a deadly game. But like the sage, I'll welcome death rather than drop my pen, rather than crumple my half-written page. Solzhenitsyn also mentioned someone named Anatoly Vasilyevich Selin, who is a religious poet, an orphan that was raised as an atheist. And he mentions that there were these really extraordinary souls concealed in deceptively ordinary exteriors. Selin refused to compromise his belief in God in order to teach. Though he was a follower of Christ, Selin couldn't fit the mold of the Orthodox or Baptist Christians. And the Baptist Christians were targeted simply for being part of Baptist communes. Unlike the outside world, prisoners couldn't hide who they really were through their outwardly appearance. They couldn't hide their spirit because that was all that would really distinguish them. And so like would attract like. One man spent three years captured by the Afghans because he refused to bear arms since he didn't think it was right to kill. And then Solzhenitsyn poses an amazing question here. He asks, if the state doesn't bring a person into the world, why does the state have a right to decide how a man must live? I think that's a great question. A few more characters are mentioned and described, including the man I think he's mentioned earlier, whose name is Rappaport. He ran across the line, the boundary line, where he could have been shot um, in order to catch his work that was flying away, but people actually recognized that it was someone just chasing after his work. This man was interested in a lot of subjects and he wrote a treatise on love and wanted to come up with a technical reference book. As an alternative to Stendhal's treatise on love, I wonder what that's like, he wrote the following. Possession without the preliminary organic development of feeling 
brings not joy but shame and revulsion. The men of our age, who devote all their energy to making money, to their jobs, to the exercise of power, have lost the gene of higher love. On the other hand, woman's unerring instinct tells her that possession is only the first stage towards genuine intimacy. Only after it does a woman acknowledge a man as near and dare, and show it in her way of speaking to him. Even a woman who gives herself unintentionally feels an access of grateful tenderness. Jealousy is injured self-esteem. Real love, unrequited, is not jealous, but dies, ossifies. Love, as much as science, art, and religion, is a mode of cognition. Solzhenitsyn could make acquaintances simply from the book he was carrying around and people being interested in it, that being Dahl's Dictionary. There was one man from Hungary who fell in love with Russian literature, although he only experienced the inside of camp and he spent time in an infirmary where a nurse nurtured him. The culture and education section had a lot of spies in it. A lot of poets in the prisons would make up art about prison life but disguise it under art about love. And he also says that the men who were hardened by prison could still find tears for the right love poem. Chapter 6, The Committed Escaper. So the book really got interested here and was actually kind of gripping, like I didn't want to stop hearing what would happen next. So this chapter is about special people called committed escapers who would try over and over again to escape because it didn't matter that they would get another 25 year sentence, it would usually end up only being two years extra. And he focuses on a specific man named Georgi Pavlovich Tenno. Committed escapees knew exactly what they were getting into, that their body might be returned just or just the head or they could be an example after they were beaten and being returned to the punishment cell. They would ignore suggestions to just leave everything be and stay where they were from other prisoners. So Georgi Tenno, he missed his chance to escape in transit because they very deceptively reassured him that things would be okay. And Tenno would make these really intricate escape plans in his mind. And the book points out really well, I can't give all the details, how someone who's a committed escapee would not be experiencing prison life in the same way because they were always calculating how many steps were they taking, how many locks were on a door, what did the guard put in his pocket, little details like that all the time and getting a general layout of the landscape, the social and the physical landscape in order to come up with their escape attempts. And prisoners could spend hours, weeks, days coming up with a plan and then that could get shot down instantly because something random might happen or even the weather might change. And some prisons were way more elaborate than others and so required a lot more thought. Solzhenitsyn mentions that the prison that Tenno was initially in, the Lefortovo prison, wasn't anything like the Lubyanka. Prisoners could also be foolish when almost escaping because they were being rowdy and alerting guards. There's one example of prisoners doing exactly this. One prisoner dresses up as a warden after keeping the warden tied up in the bathroom. But then the prisoners made so much noise that they alerted another place and a centralized security system was put into place. So it was all for naught because they couldn't just not, I don't know, be more sly or slick about what was happening. Prisoners could try to pretend that they were weak to escape notice or they could work as a group but then everyone in the group would have to be resolved and not change their mind and be like up to it. 
in one example of the weather getting in the way, there was a dust storm that wasn't expected for when an escape was planned. In this example, due to the dust storm being there and causing a commotion and dust, someone was able to escape during, during routine work. At one point, Tenno considered trying to escape through a sewage truck, but then he decided that the driver wasn't the right person, like in the sewage truck. Tenno also would then pretend to be interested in the cultural and educational center in order to get the guards and the scent off of his back. And committed escapers, those who would attempt and fail over and over again, they were kind of shuttled around from camp to camp. They were driven by their troubled destiny, like quote-unquote, in Solji's words, flying Dutchmen. At Ekebastos, where Solzhenitsyn was, prisoners were also given special work to reform them, but that only made them want to leave more. They would be told to work in a lime kiln, which got lime all over their eyes and mouths and in their windpipes. And Tenno formulates a plan in the text at that time with the ace driver, I'm not sure what that means, named Kolya Stanok. And uh, he was the driver of the lorry that brought in the lime. And he became an involuntary accomplice in the end because another man named Ivan Vorobyov, who couldn't drive, insisted on trying to drive when they were trying to make the escape, well, when Tenno was trying to make the escape happen. And this caused both Tenno and Jabber to stay behind because they didn't trust this Ivan guy with driving. So it turned out that this Ivan guy could drive. So they got a little far, but then the plan failed just by chance because a prison transport van just happened to be coming by but since it almost worked it was repeated by prisoners but that one failed as well and at least one prisoner died so then Georgi Tenno and Kolya Zdanok they then decided to come up with another escape plan and the lime kilns seemed like a really good place to try but although they wanted to do the lime kilns there was a professional prisoner a murderer who warned them to not escape from his work area which was the lime kilns although he himself had attempted to escape and it's pointed out that this was a mindset of these professional prisoners. So then Tenno and Stanok, and I'm going to use their names interchangeably because that's what the book does. So remember both their last name and first name. So Georgi Tenno and Kolya Stanok, they tried another plan that involved stealing an electrician's wire cutters, making knives from shovels, and making a really grand scheme where they said they were gonna be participating in a play in the cultural and educational center. So they had to be doing this for a long time so that they could be out late and get the guards used to them being out at odd hours, etc. And that also allowed them to map the area. Coincidentally, although my note, there are no coincidences in life, in my opinion. The day of the escape, Sunday, September 17, Tenno received a letter from his mother and a parcel from her. There was another experienced escapee who decided that he was too old to go along and then ended up saying a prayer for them. And then a fellow prisoner who was Tenno's old cellmate from the Lobianka, right after they all saw the coffin of a man who had been trying to escape before, recently being carried out, said to them by picking up the briefcase, which was really important for the actual escape, and playing the part of the interrogator told them that they shouldn't tr be trying to escape. So maybe that was a coincidence too, or maybe he actually knew what they were trying and was trying to warn them not to do it. So Tenno and Stana got ready by just loosening their number patches 
and they were depending on the sentry not being so alert at the end of the day when roll call came because they wouldn't be visible remaining outside they were going to be playing a card game i think it is on the ground and then when everyone was coming in it would be too dark to fully see they also bribed a lorry driver with a half a liter of vodka that chapter was very interesting to read chapter seven the white kitten Yergi tenno's tale so this is the beginning so he's working with kolya Stanok. i am the senior partner so i must go first sheath knife at my belt wire cutters in my hands Catch up with me when I cut the boundary wire. I crawl flat on my belly, trying to press myself into the ground. Shall I look towards the sentry or not? If I do, I shall see what danger I'm in and perhaps even draw his gaze upon me. How I'm tempted to look, but I won't. Nearer to the watchtower, nearer to death. I expect a burst of machine gun fire to hit me. Any minute now, I shall hear it shatter. Perhaps he can see me perfectly well and is standing there laughing at me, letting me scrabble a bit further. Here's the boundary wire. I turn around and lie parallel with it. I cut the first strand. The severed wire twangs as it loses its tautness. Now for the machine gun burst? No. Perhaps no one else could hear that sound, though it was very loud. I cut the second strand and the third. I swing one leg over, then the other. My trousers catch on the barb of a trailing strand. I free myself. I crawl over several meters of plowed land. There's a rustling behind me. It's Kolya. But why is he making so much noise? Of course, it's the briefcase dragging along the ground. Here are the abutments to the main fence. The wires are crisscrossed. I cut a few of them. Now there's a spiral entanglement. I cut it twice and clear away. Now I cut some strands of the main fence. Are we breathing at all? Probably not. Still, he doesn't shoot. Is he dreaming of home or thinking of the dance tonight? I heave my body over the outer fence. There's yet another barbed wire entanglement. I get caught in it. I cut my way out. I mustn't forget and mustn't get stuck. There must still be the ultra sloping barriers ahead. Here they are. I cut them. Now I am crawling towards the hole. Here it is, just where it should be. I lower myself into it. Kolya follows. We pause to get our breath. But we must hurry on. Any minute now, the guard will be relieved and the dogs will be here. We hoist ourselves over the hole and crawl towards the slag heaps. We still can't bring ourselves to look around. In his eagerness to be out of the place, Collier rises onto all fours. I push him down again. In a leopard crawl, I put the wire cutters under a stone. Here's the road. A little way from it, we got to our feet. No one opens fire. I'm skipping a bit here where they run into someone unexpectedly and then it's okay and they tear the numbers off their backs. Have we escaped notice? Are we free? Now to the settlement to find a lorry. But what's that? A flare roars up over the camp. Another one. A third. They found us out. The pursuit will start right away. We must run. No more looking around. No more stopping to think. No more careful calculation or magnificent plan is in ruins. We rush into the step to get as far from the camp as we can. We gasp for breath. Stumble over bumps in the, in the ground. Jump up again while rocket after rocket shoots up into the sky. Remembering previous escape attempts, we imagine them shortly sending out mounted search parties with dogs on leashes over the step in every direction. So we sprinkle all our precious Makorka in our tracks and take big jumps. Now we shall have to make a wide detour around the settlement and keep to the step. It takes a lot of time and trouble. Kolya begins to doubt whether I am leading him the right way. I am offended. But here is the embankment of the Pavlodar Railway. 
We are very glad to see it. From the embankment, we are astounded by the widely scattered lights of Echibastus. It looks bigger than we have ever seen it. We choose ourselves a stick. Holding on to it, we walk along, one on each rail. Once a train goes by, the dogs will be unable to pick up the scent from the rails. We go on like that for about 300 meters, then take a few jumps and into the step. At last, we can breathe. We want to sing and shout. We hug one another. We really are free. How we admire ourselves for resolving to escape, succeeding in doing so, and eluding the dogs. Although the test of our willpower is only just beginning, we feel as though the worst of it were already over. The sky is clear, dark, and full of stars. You never see it like that from the camp because of all the lights. Guided by the pole star, we travel northeast. Later on, we shall veer right and reach the Urtish. We must try to get as far away as possible this first night. I don't really think I can translate this chapter very well because it's so gripping and well done. I really think it should be made into a movie. <laughs> it's so good and I was like totally caught up in it. So they escape and by chance the camp's lighting system had failed and that allowed the flares to be used and that let them know that the hunt was on for sure. It turns out that the rest of the prisoners had thought that they had cut out the lighting system, but that's not what had happened. And it hadn't actually helped them. As the sun rises, since night is the only time for escapees, they make a foxhole with their knives half a meter wide and 30 centimeters deep, and they cover it with prickly yellow step gorse. They suffer the heat, they're dying of thirst, and they lie head to toe since any movement of the gorse could alert someone going by on horse, and they fought fleas, for three days without water and they stayed in a hole that was previously dug out by a jackal also barely moving about a third of the way to the Urtish. They scare a Kazakh woman herding sheep, they were trying to get a horse and after five nights without sleep, after finally sleeping by staying in some hay, they try again at night to drink the tractor's cooling water but it has kerosene in it and they can't drink it. In the past they might have been able to ask for food but at that time in the climate they couldn't ask anybody for help. So Janitsyn mentions that the 19th century failed to realize that a gift of bread and water could be a political crime. They finally end up stealing from a Kazakh couple with children who are in a yurt. They initially asked them for help and they pretended to be on a business trip but the man didn't want to so they get food, meat, knife and a drink called kumis and Tenno chastises the man for not helping him in the first place and they tell him to remain still and claim that they have friends outside. The horse, once they had him, kept trying to turn back home and they rode eastward. Kolya sang a song. Out on the ledge where the wind blows free, a cowboy's five is a life for me. With a horse I can trust beneath me. <laughs> he made up a song. But then they realized that they lost their blanket and that would leave a trail. So they keep riding and they have to abandon the horse because it slipped free and just refused to be tame and they finish their water. They see reeds and are excited because they know that there's water so they might be near the Irtish. After eight days their stomach starts working again. I'll read some more here. At a fork in the road something happened for the first time in eight days. We quarreled. I said right. Stanok said left. I felt sure that it should be right but he wouldn't listen. Another of the dangers that lie in wait for escapers falling out with one another. When you are on the run, one of your number must be allowed to have the last word, otherwise you are in trouble. Determined to have my way, I went off to the right. 
I walked a hundred meters and still heard no footsteps behind me. My heart ached. We couldn't just part like that. I sat down by a haystack and looked back. Kolya was coming. I hugged him. We walked on side by side as though nothing had happened. So they find the Urtish and they sleep and sleep on the ninth day and they find a boat that luckily the owner left with oars and they row in the dark, they see a steamer and similar to how Solzhenitsyn mentioned this on his trip, his transit trip, they see free people who weren't aware of their freedom. They find a calf near a house, kill the calf, but with a lot of trouble on the water. Tenno doesn't want to kill the calf, but he hates the calf for struggling and almost sinking the boat. They stay on this island from the 10th to the 16th days, but, they, but then they have to leave because they run into someone. They're eventually able to buy food and supplies and run into the first set of kind people. Tenno is agonized from this problem he has where he can't find a razor to shave which they will need in order to make it through the train station area. And then they almost get caught because Stanok wants to get warm and Georgi can't deny him. So they stay at the house. And the house ends up calling the, well the owners of the house ends up calling the authorities on them. And then they find another house where the old man was at first suspicious but then kind. And then they run across a man and a wife on a boat leaving with all their belongings. They had passports, they would have, the, this man and the wife would have had passports and a well needed razor and money and provisions. And Georgi struggles about whether or not to take these things and they pretend to be part of the MVD, the Special Forces Operations. And I'm going to read again. If we took their papers, they would have no choice but to report us. To prevent their doing so, we must tie them up here and now. Tie them up well and truly so that we could have two or three days head start. But in that case, wouldn't it be better simply to... Kolya came back and signaled that everything was alright up above. He was waiting for me to say, Makmadera. What was I to do? The slave camp of Ekebastus rose before my eyes. Could I go back to that? Surely we had the right... And suddenly, suddenly, something very light touched my legs. I looked down, something small and white. I bent over. It was a white kitten. It had jumped out of the boat, and with its tail stiff as a stalk in the air, it purred and rubbed itself against my legs. It didn't know what I was thinking. I felt as though the touch of this kitten had sapped my willpower, stretched taut for 20 days ever since I had slipped under the wire. It suddenly seemed to snap. I felt that whatever Kolya might say to me now, I could never take their lives, nor even the money they had earned in the sweat of their brows. So they left the couple alone who had all the things they needed, but the couple turns out to have been unsympathetic towards them when they had actually seen them earlier and they would have told on them, they realized that as they were leaving. So they started making mistakes right after the white kitten incident. Something happens with fire, they can't see eye to eye, they lose confidence, Kolya wants to leave and does but then Georgi follows him and then they end up being recaptured, well Georgi does and then he pretends to be injured from gunshots but they beat him up and ask him for his name and they, he eventually gives his name and he describes being rhythmically struck on the face, left, right, left, right as though he were swimming by an officer and his head banging against the wall with every blow. 
He also describes a forester being given the task, which the other officers didn't want to do, of helping him relieve himself because he needed to pee or maybe more, I don't know. And someone had to be there to help him because he couldn't use his hands and how that was very common. Um, and so he felt like he should describe it, although maybe it wasn't the nicest thing to want to read about. And then with people around, the local people, they were told lies about Georgi and Kolya being murderers, which wasn't true. But the villagers believe in it and shouting obscenities at them. And so he's taken back to prison, Georgi, first. And he also describes how on his way back, the floor is jagged and they leave his face lying there, bumping up and down the whole time and cutting up his face and no one caring for hours until some one person who really stuck out and he doesn't know why has sympathy on him eventually and picks him up and lets him know that they're almost there and when he got back to the prison they didn't put him in disciplinary barracks but put him in the regular cell so that everyone could get a look at him after that interesting travel experience so Collier was out there on his own but because he hadn't been the brains of the operations he didn't last very long and he kept making simple mistakes like keeping a bicycle and gun that he had taken and then being friendly with an old lady and her daughter who reported him and they took Collier's money. They weren't tried until after nine months and then they only had two more years extra although they both each got another 25 years. The only real threat was being told that they might be charged as economic disruptors because that could possibly result in capital punishment and they would have been economic disruptors because they had brought disorder into the economy of the people's state by doing their escape so the state spent a bunch of money trying to recapture them and then work wasn't really happening while they were gone for a couple of days and it also turns out that there had been a nationwide search and 400 pictures of him Tenno and Stanok had been plastered everywhere. So Georgi Tenno died on October 22, 1967 of cancer, but he did see these writings and helped with editing them. Okay, so that's my recounting of this tale of the white kitten and I couldn't believe that they didn't make it. I like, I totally thought they were going to make it and I was really sad when they didn't and when both of them ended up not making it, I was like, really felt it so as you can tell this part of the book I don't know I think it should be like a movie I mean there's still a bit more so and like if you really imagine this it's awful <laughs> like it's really awful and also the term Mac Madeira that's what they would say when they realized there was no point in asking someone for help like they tried they would have to take it by force anyhow chapter 8 escapes morale and mechanics this chapter is a retelling of other escape attempts it's very dark and the specifics of how escapes were carried out are described it usually involved a lot of planning that wasn't needed in regular camps and unlike in regular camps escapes from the special camps were much more important because they just weren't acceptable to the officials in one case, political prisoners were caught, but the free people would have actually helped them if they had known specifically that they were political prisoners. One prisoner foolishly went to his former girlfriend's simply to have a good time, and then in another, two prisoners killed another prisoner because they thought they couldn't all make it, and then the killers were surprised when the former prisoner that they were escaping with his blood 
wouldn't flow for them to drink it because that's what they needed because it had curdled. These prisoners out on the run who just finished killing the other prisoner and trying to drink his blood. They were spotted by plane. Um, when they returned, the remaining prisoners wanted to avenge the one that was killed, but they were held in a separate cell. You know, they should be like, uh, there's some tribe in Africa where they, they like humanely drink the blood of the cows. I, I think I'm bringing this up to like distract my mind from what I just said, like the story, cause it's really like, okay. Can't really, can't really think about this. In one impromptu escape, the person actually escaped, but then he was caught four years later because he was playing accordion music in public and the guards were there and recognized him. So he should have stayed put. And then there were some really well thought out escape attempts. Like technically, a false end wall was made to put into a box car to hide the prisoners and it didn't work the first time, but then a similar attempt involving a door frame was made where they unloaded at a building site. But then after it actually worked, the person who escaped was caught walking into town. Guards would also build trenches around to avoid tunneling under to escape. So there was a particular escape plan that involved tunneling where the workers actually got together and became efficient because they could muster all of that up, that energy and brain power and um, care into their work in order to try and escape. And they hit it really well at first, This, but this was when Stanok and Tenno arrived again. And Tenno realized that something was up and he questioned until he found the details. And then eventually they ended up letting him in. Tenno would realize things like, all the workers would go to a specific hut in order to have a smoke and then the door wouldn't be immediately open whenever someone knocked so he saw the little details because that's what you do when you're a committed escapee and so they figured out a way to dig underneath be really clean and put all the planks back in place and then move the dirt up into the attic they had to figure up a whole system for that of the place so they could hide everything and at one point the guards actually came because they thought something might be going on and they couldn't figure it out which meant that they were doing a really good job. But then, <laughs> it was time to escape. Tenno actually couldn't make it because he was supposed to be transferred and he didn't want to protest too much and cause suspicion, so he just let it go and had Stanok Kolya take his place. Stanok was the fifth person to be leaving and just like when he was escaping with Tenno in the earlier chapter, he ruined it because he couldn't just keep his head down when a guard was walking by and he blew the whole operation simply because he couldn't keep his head down. So the guards actually still never fully figured it out until the prisoners ended up telling them because it was all over anyway. And then they would have tours where they would bring other officials in and brag about how they caught them in this escape plan. But it was only because of Kolya Shtanov and uh unfriendly and informing once again kazakhs who were the shepherds of the steppes when the escapees needed food were the reason why the, the four first prisoners who did escape didn't eventually make it um Solzhenitsyn describes uh Kolyashtanak as a louse and i'll give a quote the quickest louse is first on the nitkul 
but as well as himself, this stupid louse destroyed an escape team equally remarkable for the cogency of their plan and for their ability to work smoothly together, ruined 14 long and difficult lives whose paths had intersected in his escape. In each of these lives, this attempt had a special importance. Without it, past and future were meaningless. On each of them, people somewhere still depended, women, children, and children still unborn. But a louse raised its head and the whole thing went up in smoke. Solzhenitsyn also states, funnily, that the big-bellied commandment of the Ekebastus camp used to boast to other area commandments at Gulag HQ. You should see the tunnel at my place, like the metro, but we, or vigilance. And so Solzhen mentions that Marx's professor asking why prisoners didn't just escape or revolt. Chapter 9. Kids with Tommy Guns. This chapter is sage. And it reminds me a lot of what we see happen today with the filter between what is going on and how we perceive it. That being the media. Young men were the kids with Tommy Guns. They hadn't served, but then they were brandishing guns as guards. And they didn't know who they had the power to kill or why they were there. Women and children were told that they were being protected from murderers, rapists, and looters. And they were made the prisoners to look the part through their clothing and living conditions. And this engendered feelings of disgust in everyone else. Political instructors who may have actually been former prisoners, they would teach the boys with Tommy guns to disregard feelings of empathy and compassion and teach that prisoners deserve to have their faces bloodied for supposedly sleeping all day or getting not that much less than a convoy guard after getting extra rations for working overtime. I want to repeat this because I think it's really important. Instructors would teach the boys with Tommy guns to disregard any feelings of empathy or compassion, teaching that the prisoners, the victims, deserved to have their faces bloodied for supposedly sleeping all day or getting not that much less for trivial things basically i just think there's a lot to learn from that that we do have a choice to disregard our feelings of empathy and compassion we don't have to follow them not even me <laughs> who feels as if i always have feelings of empathy and compassion can choose to disregard them and are we taught to do that or is the system possibly set up in a way to have that happen? Just something for thought. There were also incentives to shoot for the people with the guns. Um, they could receive butter or get a month's leave or a month's pay. Guards could shoot just because they disliked a prisoner. And I think as stated before, they could bribe them to cross the borderline with a cigarette or claim that they crossed some invisible borderline. And for conscientious prisoners, they might be the ones who were most susceptible to this kind of invisible borderline thing because they would just be doing their work and maybe go to pick up some extra piece of hay that because they were so focused on their work and then pass the line. And this reminds me of uh, police officers or any job being tied to pay where you're making moral decisions, which is pretty much every job. <laughs> and so people choosing to care about money, justifying it, 
because we have a lot of justification about that and again i get it because you're like i have to care about you know myself or my family or whatever but a lot of times we like think these are the options like there's like this set of options and we have to do this but actually if you think what if i make the decision that's more moral there are actually more options than you realize are there i've just been seeing that a lot lately the punishment for a guard and then in one example for shooting five prisoners because he thought that one of them was about to get out of line was only detention for 15 days in a guardhouse that was warm so Denison also quotes scripture here without actually stating that he's doing it he says woe unto you that cause these little ones to stumble better for you had you never been born which is very similar to matthew 18 5 to 7 and whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for the causes of sin. These stumbling blocks must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. So he didn't state it because it's not precisely it, but I'm pretty sure it's a reference. Boys sometimes didn't willingly join the guards. And this is talked about in volume one. I remember this was when I just started this book, which is a long time ago, which is long way before i actually made a video fyi but so Jason also talks about how the people who decided to continue versus people who refused that they were probably weak in character in the first place in the special camps guards were trained not to see prisoners as humans and to shoot them with less hesitancy in one example at special camps they used dum-dums which are expanding bullets and these were outlawed elsewhere these left creators in prisoners bodies mangled their jaws and blew their entrails and here's a quote this is surely the main problem of the 20th century is it permissible merely to carry out orders and commit one's conscience to someone else's keeping can a man do without ideals of his own about good and evil and merely derive them from the printed instructions and verbal orders of his superiors oaths those solemn pledges pronounced with a tremor in the voice and intended to defend the people against evildoers. See how easily they can be misdirected to the service of evildoers and against the people. Chapter 10. Behind the wire, the ground is burning. This chapter is about mutinies and uprisings occurring, yay, in spite of the conditions on how they were suppressed even as recently as 10 or 15 years before the time of writing. Solzhenitsyn mentions that it's no wonder that people question the existence of Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad since these stories are thousands of years ago. Uprisings were more common in the earlier years because trained soldiers would plan escapes and they had the stamina, spirit, and know-how to help political prisoners. But many prisoners who had short sentences or who were willing to be political martyrs would refuse to leave when the gates were opened. Special camps were also more likely to have uprisings because people knew that they weren't the only ones disgruntled. This was distinct from regular camps that didn't have political prisoners because in those camps, everyone was always suspicious of others because you didn't actually know why you were there because it wasn't for wrong think. But in the special camps with all the political prisoners together, it was easier to form a plan. 
He also mentions Solzhenitsyn, the frog in boiling water analogy in terms of people not being able to know what others thought and general distrust and lack of connection. In one of the earlier outbreaks in January in 1942, a free employee worked with the 58s or political prisoners and the socially harmful, Article 7, Section 35. And for this section of the book, Solzhenitsyn mentions that he might not have all the details correct, especially about the earlier uprisings. In the special camps, because prisoners were more open about talking and also had really long sentences, the foreman kind of mellowed somewhat and then individual escapes would become rebellions from many people with many people stoolies began to disappear <laughs> one stoolie hanged himself and there's a story mentioned of a muslim boy who was beat up unfairly and then other Mus muslims avenging him changes happened even in the camps for the disabled over time in dubovka new arrivals who were mainly western ukrainian Sturdy young fellows who were fresh from the guerrilla trails came in and were horrified at the complacency and the submissiveness of all the other prisoners. And so they avenged people. For example, two girls who were talking in bed being given a capital sentence because they were having anti-Soviet talk in bed. So stoolies kept talking because they could be next. So because of this, a sense of community justice emerged. It was illegal and it was imprecise, but speaking of his camp experience, Solzhenitsyn thinks it was way more accurate than all the tribunals. Murders became common and a movement formed. Avengers with knives, they wore masks. And though they couldn't find people to become foremen anymore, and some former foremen who knew they were guilty and might be, found out or something horrible happened to them, they would run to the disciplinary barracks. And it wasn't all gangsterism. The regime also tried to threaten the murderers with murder if they could find them. And then they also tried to make life difficult for everyone so that people would give up the people who were doing the avenging, but none of it worked. They even came up with a scheme to weaken the moral psyche of the prisoners by taking photographs of them and asking them where they would want to be if they were allowed to leave, if they were free, but that was all a ruse and people saw through it. Chapter 11, Tearing at the Chains. The prisoners then didn't know what to do with their freedom. They were already happy for their freedom of speech. Funny, that's the first naturally important freedom, my comment. The prisoners were thinking to maybe have a hunger strike and prepare proper signals among the huts, but right then the guards reshuffled the huts by nationality um, and moved people away from the disciplinary barracks and so that left everyone closer and they had the stoolies torture the prisoners. Then the prisoners went to start a fire to retaliate but then the machine gun opened from the tower indiscriminately and the warders beat the prisoners. This was in Ekebastus. After things quieted down, although the prisoners were locked in their huts, unable to communicate and piece together exactly what had happened, there was a 3,000 man hunger strike and these prisoners were already starving, famished, and they hadn't come up with the signals because it kind of happened fast <laughs> and the guards couldn't make them come out. The prisoners instead demanded justice and the locks on the doors being removed and that their numbers be removed and that their cases be reviewed in open courts. 
So the prisoners banded together and they were starving, but their hearts were resolved. And so Jadison talks about there being this spiritual strength that arose in these situations among everyone. During this hunger strike, there was a foreman who didn't even look up when the guard came to offer food and not even talk about work. But then hunt number nine did give in and one Polish engineer and it's pointed out that this might be a mark of being Polish still refused to give in and Solzhenitsyn calls it Polish pride. And then seemingly another ruse Higher-ups in nice clothes came to write down prisoner complaints. This was when everyone gave in since one hut, number nine, gave in. But this was actually a way to find out who was the most rebellious. So Jason, he had a, his tumor and at this point he tries to go and go and get it surgically removed. And this was Solzhenitsyn's last day as a foreman. While they're giving their complaints, which is only a way to figure out who were the most rebellious and who cared the most, one foreman says that he used to think that they lived like dogs, but at this point realized that they actually lived worse than dogs as prisoners. In the hospital waiting for his tumor operation, Solzhenitsyn sees the brutality of what the warders did when beating the prisoners. They had used lengths of pipe, for example, iron pipe. One man died of his wounds um, and he sees that the flesh of prisoners was in ribbons and they had nothing to lie on like their flesh these wounded prisoners so after this fake caring about prisoners complaints there was a punishment people got sent away to be interrogated or shot Solzhenitsyn ends up not having his operation because the doctor was made to leave the day before it was supposed to happen and the informers become bold again and the only complaint that was sort of responded to was them receiving pay but at the end of it all because a lot of it went to running the camps they only got 13 percent of the price of what they produced some informers were treated well for a while since they brought charges against those who were taken off for trial but that was only temporary and the stoolies the informers they were treated badly once more because you know how can you have loyalty in a place where evil is rampant at the end of it all though, it wasn't exactly the same. The informers and the guards couldn't completely forget how easy it was to have a knife placed in them by someone avenging other prisoners and the special camp system was beginning to collapse, although it was expanded in 1952. In fact, all across Kazakhstan in bathroom stalls, the Ekibastus rebellion was praised. Hail the fighters of Ekebastus. And then the Ekebastus freedom fever spread to Kengir. They stole handcuffs and made future museum displays about Soviet slaves. So for example, after stealing the handcuffs, they would put them into the walls and break them up in there and then leave notes that said, Descendants, these houses were built by Soviet slaves. Here you see the sort of handcuffs they wore. And so the chopping of informers recommenced in Kengir because that spirit was there. And so the natives were beginning to tear at their chains even in Stalin's lifetime in the early 1950s. This is where the crack in the system came from. Not from the top, not from the system wanting to change. It was from the people deciding to not put up with things anymore. Beria's fall was significant because he was at the top of the special forces, the MVD, and Stalin's right hand, and he was called an enemy of the people. In one camp, 
Workers rebelled by simply stopping work, but 66 were killed. Wooden patches were put on some huts where unknown soldiers fired above the crowd to avoid becoming murderers. And a cross was put up on the communal grave, taken down and put up again. As a side note, I was trying to look up who exactly Berea was and what happened with him. And his Wikipedia page is really awful. I just wasn't expecting it. And there's no way to compare what is the worst kind of harm you can commit on another person. But I found his sexual predation... The, the psychological aspect of it very uh, interesting almost I'm thinking I don't even want to say it because it's well it's good to know what exists in the world and um, it's it's really something else that this man who was Stalin's right hand and I also want to mention just like with any horrible thing you've heard of it's regular people doing it regular meaning they can have a life they can have a family and a wife and children like, think about slave owners like people are complex and they do this they can be showing like love to these specific people like Stalin and his daughter when Solzhenitsyn mentions the the 12 year old age and then be doing other things I'm sure you've seen this in your life but for some reason I think people forget when they're hearing about this stuff they're, they're thinking of like these special people out there and no it's not like that Chapter 12, The 40 Days of Kengir. Berea's fall, head of the MVD, Special Forces, Stalin's right-hand man, being called an enemy of the people, that meant that everyone under him was suspect. So MVD officers lost their second wage, and then the officers tried to stir up trouble in the camps to show that they were needed. At Kengir, after inmates were killed, there was a girl named Lida who hung out her laundry and got killed, and a Chinese man who got killed and in particular there was a man known as the evangelist in 1954 at Kengir. his name is alexander sisoyev he was just peeing near a shed and shot and killed from a watchtower for absolutely nothing so there was an uprising because of these things people were really upset understandably and uh, the prisoners took control of the camp the officials tried to retain order after the uprising but they couldn't and they brought thieves in to try to maintain order because they were the socially friendly elements and we all know what that means. And, <laughs> uh, but the thieves were outnumbered four to one and so they decided to join in the rebellion since that made more sense. And in a supposed attack on the women's camp, everyone worked together. And everything was great for a while, really surprisingly so for the prisoners themselves. People could meet in prayer again, foreigners could speak in their own language, men and women who had been married but hadn't been able to see each other could then be married and actually live together. He mentions Lithuanian legal husbands and wives. Some prisoners would have remained servile and were okay with the status quo but they were just brought along by default. And a temporary committee was formed for self-government, but it was actually to last for 40 days, hence the title of this chapter, The 40 Days of King Gear. The prisoners were kind of cool and made weapons with machines before the power went, and they came up with plans for an inevitable military retaliation. And the women, they had temporary rooms in the men's section because they naively thought that the officers would hesitate to attack women. And uh, despite what the officers thought it turned out in the end that a lot of the women remained virgins after the fact and uh Solzhenitsyn mentions that maybe the thieves were thinking of their mates who were killed at the beginning of the takeover 
The thieves also didn't touch the food stores. Everything ran smoothly under this self-government and there were the same norms, but more food was available, somehow. Electricity, water and medicine were still under the control of the camp and the only thing that was left of them was the water supply. Um, the thieves did steal electricity at first. They figured out a hydroelectric station with an abandoned motor and a water tank. And this ran the telephone, radio and light at the headquarters of the taken over part of the camp. And I liked this line. I always like these gender related lines about the self-government. So they would have women around because, quote, a man will not run away and in general will show more courage in the presence of a woman with this masculine psychological trait in mind, end quote, they would have women around for the, the, the guards. So because the camp was not falling apart, the prisoners made requests. They wanted the following. Punish the evangelist's murderer. Punish all those responsible for the murders on Sunday night in the service yard. Punish those who beat up the woman. Bring back those comrades who had been illegally sent to closed prisons for striking. No more number patches, window bars, or locks on hot doors. They didn't want the inner walls between camp divisions to be rebuilt. An eight-hour day, as for free workers, an increase in payment for work, unrestricted correspondence with relatives, periodic visits, and a review of cases. The man who led the rebellion and led the whole self-government plan, his name was Captain Kuznetsov, and Solzhenitsyn was suspicious of him because a lot of these men would wear their old uniforms and, you know, go on power trips. And they even made a jailhouse created for the self-run camp. So it's like they didn't learn anything and were doing the same thing to people. There were also loyalists, Orthodox Soviet citizens who condemned the attempts at freedom. And at one point during the 40 days, the prisoners and the officers had a war between each other that involved playing records that got on everybody's nerves. These would jam any possible communication from the prisoners to the outside world. And then they also used kites to try to send messages, but the officials would fly their own kites to tangle up the prisoners' kites. So the, offici the officials would be trying different tactics, but always be asking at the end for prisoners to go back to work. Then there was a breach in their self-government ran camp and the officers asked people to surrender. Only about a dozen people left. The prisoners were prepared to face machine guns with pikes. After the breach, religious people were the calmest ones, as usual, so she says, and they were waiting for God's will to be done. And a prophet, real or fake, went around talking about the end of the world. Then, the officers came with machine guns and killed a lot of people, up to 700 people, and then they would position prisoners with knives and then claim that they had killed themselves and take pictures to prove that they hadn't done what they did. People were run over with T-34 tanks. One of the prominent leaders, Kuznetsov, he was lifted high into the air then flung to the ground. And then after they stopped shooting people, they beat the rest of them up. Solzhenitsyn also mentions for the reader to place the timeline into context that the 40 days of Kengir revolt happened around the time of Sartre arriving in Moscow to join progressive politics. The Stalin Peace Prize was being given to Percot. There was a Geneva conference on Indochina in session and the Dolgorukim monument was unveiled 
all of that happens during the Kangaroo Revolt. But afterwards, bars weren't put back on windows. Local residents discovered where people were buried and then brought step tulips to put on graves. In Guatemala, the United States was met with a rebuff, which was rightly deserved, according to Solji. So that was part five of the Gulag Archipelago. All of part five, including chapters one to 12, and it was titled Catorga, which is about the special camps. So here are my overall comments and what stood out to me. The first thing, obviously, is the word katorga, meaning hard labor, and how that was used as a way to inspire revolution against hard labor and slavery. And then the hypocrisy of that on the part of the regime and Stalin and katorga is being used. And that is a very, that is a recurring theme hypocrisy throughout all of this exploration into communism and there's something interesting that kind of happens so if you think about economics and people are talking about how people shouldn't be seen in only economic terms which i agree with but they say they meaning all the people who are against capitalism for example that people are only viewed for their economic value I don't think that's actually true in the, the way it works person to person, but when economists are looking top down and talking about like incentives or the importance of pricing, for example, the system, the supposed economic system, which isn't about economics at all, is all about social theory and it claims to care so much about humans and their labor and social things. Care. And then it does exactly the opposite. So it seems to me that the system that in theory doesn't focus on those things well when talking about transactions at like a network level I, I do think it's really different like when you're hiring someone for a job like social stuff absolutely matters but when it's talking about the network it doesn't focus on that at all it ends up caring about the individual <laughs> and caring about that stuff more than the thing that claims that it doesn't so that's something that stood out to me. Another thing is that I was not expecting the use of terrorism, even though it makes sense. How else are you gonna overpower some other force? I mean, with the way the system is set up, and this kind of brings me to another point, which is that of rebellion. This really reminded me of rebellions in slavery. And I have to point out that I'm talking about Jamaica, the country I'm from, because everyone just thinks about American slavery, and it's not the same, um, although it is the same. The cultural imprint in the minds of people and how they narrate these stories in their heads are different depending on where you're from. So I just have to point that out because it, it gets kind of annoying that everything is always focused on the US. Not that the US isn't worthy of being focused on, but it's just the ignorance of everywhere else. I was thinking about that and in my mind, I don't really think innocent people were, um, well, you didn't, you didn't have to be <laughs> killing informers or something like that. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure people would have brought that up if that was the case because people love to do that, poke holes in theories. So I was thinking about that, that I was surprised about terrorism coming up, but 
I don't know how else it would have happened in a system that pits people against each other in that way because it's not the same thing as slavery and at the same time this really reminded me of slave rebellions and just random fact about me my favorite Jamaican national hero is Paul Bogle and you can go look him up if you so desire and then another thing was the deliberate use of numbers for prisoners and this is another question that I'm not gonna answer <laughs> why do you want to use numbers for people what is it about that that people in charge why do they want to do that what is it i thought it was really cool that tenno got to tell the story in chapter seven about the white kitten i didn't see it coming and it it it, it felt like an i don't know it felt like i felt like i was there a little bit um, like it really took my imagination places. The rest of the book does that, but in a different way. This was like, like it was like I was moving through time or something. I really think it should become a movie, just that story, or if it was combined, cause it, it would have ended so sadly because they didn't make it, ends with like whatever actually happens in the end when they're free. So maybe they could do the story with, um, Georgi and Kolya and then also do the story with uh, Kengir and then so it's like a gradual like a spark and a spark and then like the actual flame when they're they actually free which we haven't gotten there yet in my telling of Solzhenitsyn's telling of what happened in the Soviet Union. I really think this should be made into a movie and I really really think it should be done. Somebody should do this. It was interesting seeing a part where they were talking about knocking on people's doors and that seems so commonplace even though they were unfriendly and how I can't really imagine people going around knocking on doors in this way. So that still kind of happens depending on where you, you are, but not really, especially in cities. When I first came to the US, I remember doing that. I can't remember exactly why, um, but just a little bit, like actually knocking on people's doors. I, I feel like probably even then that kind of thing wouldn't happen that much, but definitely now in the town I live in, maybe a little bit, but most places know um, that you, you just wouldn't do that and how the social climate has really changed because so much of our interaction is online and so much of the things we need i don't know we don't have to do it through people which i think the choice is awesome but it's just interesting um i don't think that's inherently bad i do think like political stuff and social media and pitting people against each other is bad like i think technology is good i do think that it can be used nefariously and that that is being done today if you don't use that convenience to deepen your relationships or supplement that elsewhere those kinds of connections another thing um, which I'll just briefly mention is how difficult it was to escape because people were on the lookout for you like the whole country would be turned against you that's hard uh, that's a hard thing another thing was how many people served in the war for their country only to be sent to prison. In terms of the kids with Tommy guns and not knowing who they were talking to and not being able to know who they were talking to, that reminded me again of the disconnect, particularly on social media in our modern life. 
and the way people argue on there. Like, you don't actually know who you're talking to. And knowing who you're talking to is really important. And like seeing their humanity before you say what you're saying and really recognizing that is really important. The part where he talks about swearing oaths and listening to one's own conscience. I hope that people think about this as they decide between their jobs and getting vaccinated, for example, or making others do things. I'm not saying that that's easy, but it definitely reminds me of current times. So much of this book reminds me of current times. And then this also reminds me of the Jamaican version of informing, because that's a thing. I don't know much anymore, but if you listen to a lot of popular Jamaican music, that's like gun tunes, they call them. Um, a lot of it talks about informers and informers being bad. That's not true. Informers are good because this is like criminals doing bad things to people, like actual criminals and then uh, them being called informers. There's like a thing in the culture in Jamaica that's like that and it just reminded me of that. Another thing was that Solzhenitsy is a great writer and his use of metaphor and stuff. I was thinking to myself, maybe it's a form of Stockholm Syndrome where you're just reading something so long, you, you start to appreciate it. But it's also like, you know, there's some art piece where people stare at each other and then they like start to cry <laughs> over time. So it's like, there's like so much depth in one thing. You just usually you only, it's part of a larger thing. So you don't notice what's in that one thing also translate this to another person there's so much depth in a person but you only ever really find the time to find out about one not even that much i mean like do you ever really know about yourself this is getting pretty deep so not that that's bad but next thing <laughs> this was more interesting to listen to than the last uh section that i did <clears throat> for the series it felt like there was a fight and a struggle happening. Again, thinking about the current times and uh, vaccination and social media. So something I noticed is that if you're online, you might think that everyone has a certain opinion when they don't. Like you don't actually know what people are thinking. And that reminds me of how Solzhenitsyn was talking about outside of the special camps, a lot of distrust was there. So people couldn't come together because they all thought that we well, didn't know who to trust or what people really thought but that when everyone knew that they were in for political reasons, they could actually come together. So it's just reminded me of the importance of knowing people. So those are my comments for this part of the journey of uh, the many people who were in the Soviet labor camps. Um, from 1918 to 1956 and it seems that things are shifting and that's really exciting it's just like the ember or the glimmer you know just the beginning and the spark um so that's that's nice because you gotta have hope or how do you make it <laughs> through dark stuff um i hope that you found it useful especially if you didn't have time to listen to everything or read everything yourself or even if you did and i especially hope that you find it useful as it pertains to current times as you go out and make decisions in your life about what to do so as you know 
this is one of the last videos of uh, Just Think It Out Loud and uh, I want to tell you again that this might be a wonderful time to get some merchandise. You can go to justthinkingoutloud.tv slash merch or you can look below the video for links. And I also want to tell you if you want to keep up with me and you're so sad that I'm not making this anymore or you'd like to see my other contributions to the world we live in, um, I'm going to be focusing on my art and you can go to Desiree.com just look for my name the way you see it spelled on different social media channels and put arts at the end and then you'll find me and I think you might like it really <laughs> so go have a look oh <laughs> I'm hearing my tone start to change to a, a goodbye sentimental tone and yeah I really appreciate my experience doing all of this I mean it's just took up so much of my life for such a long time and you know my heart was really in it and that's why it's a good reason to do other things that my heart is really in and just one more video left